You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. Second City is back open for live shows, in-person classes, and customized corporate workshops and performances. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. You can go online and find out all the information you need at secondcity.com. So my guest today is Luke Burgess. Uh, He's co-created and led four companies in wellness, consumer products, and technology. And he's currently entrepreneur in residence and director of programs at the Chicoa Center for Principled, I know I said that wrong, uh, Principled Entrepreneurship, where he also teaches business at the Catholic University of America. Um, He's got this really interesting new book, which is called Wanting, The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the Yes And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next The corner of the highway that leads to the job At the desk by the boss with the elegant watch The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock Mark the moments till the ticking stops Burgess, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Kelly. Good to be here. Uh, this is a book uh, that is inspired uh, by a personal journey, um, uh, but one that is grounded in the thinking of what you describe as, quote, a fairly obscure but influential academic, end quote, <laughs> uh, by the name of René Girard. Uh, can you tell us about that person? René Girard is not quite as obscure as he used to be because he's had some famous people uh, propagate his thought. And he's been very lucky. Um, Peter mm-hmm. Thiel, the, the co-founder of PayPal, has been one of them. He was a student at Stanford. So René Girard is a French academic that came to the U.S. Uh, shortly after World War II and lived in the U.S. The, the rest of his life. He started out at Indiana University. He eventually landed at Stanford, where he taught uh, a lot of you know pretty influential people that would go on to become entrepreneurs. Uh, and Rene Girard's uh, fundamental idea and insight that really changed my life once I was able to you know really get my mind around it is the concept of mimesis or mimetic desire, and he was fascinated with the human propensity for imitation. And he saw that imitation runs far deeper than anybody had really realized. Um, So (laughs) I talk about this a lot. I'm married to uh, a professor of comedy. My wife's a tenured professor of comedy uh, and she has many theories uh, around comedy. And one of the things that she thinks people miss the, the previous theories of comedy, like benign violation and other things like that is they miss a simple recognition. People laugh at the thing that they recognize. Um, And there's so much about mirroring. 
And you actually drop some comedy stuff in here. I don't know if you <laughs> did that consciously or you're just a fan, but I mean, it's, it strikes me that, that there, there's, there was something going on there and I'm not sure if you knew about it or not. Yeah, I, I, I didn't, I don't know if I knew that in terms of comedy, but I, I mean, having done a little bit of acting as a, as a young mm-hmm. kid and a little bit of improv, um, I mean, it seems to me, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on this connection, but it would seem yes. to me that imitation has a fundamental role in, yes. in, in improv and acting, right? Like yeah. watching and listening intently to what, you know, your partners and your team are doing and then reflecting back to them. Um, I mean, the, the whole thing has some mirror, some mirror effects. Mir- well, mirroring exercises are the first thing that anyone does like in th- theater and play. Right. I mean, that, right. that's that's fundamental to the human condition in, in terms of play. We learn to mirror. Um, and you talk about this in the book in terms of babies. Uh, but, yeah, the, the that because you're also listening without judgment. Right. And, and we don't do that very well as human beings. So when you're forced to do it and also remember, you're also a character, which is also a very helpful thing in terms of getting to the subtext, which is it seems to me this this book is all about that. We're standing in the way of ourselves at any given moment. And it's very hard. I mean, we shall be very sympathetic with that, but because we don't have practices uh, to get at that. However we do. And I think they're largely found in the arts. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you appreciated uh, some of my attempts at humor in the book. Uh, Thanks for picking up on that. So yeah, one of the premises of this book is that this mere effect goes way beyond the arts though. And yeah. it's just fundamental to our everyday human lives. So in the book, I mentioned a couple examples I give, like the big Lebowski, like a lot of people that watch that movie for the first time don't realize, like it gets funnier actually the more you watch it because right. you start to realize that he's mimicking things that he heard like 10 or 15 minutes earlier in the movie. Mm-hmm. Seinfeld is another example. It's a, like a highly mimetic show. Uh, everybody's reacting to everybody else and imitating things. So you know, there is an, an aspect to this part of human nature that is like funny <laughs> and mm-hmm. performative. And it is sort of the way that we kind of find our identities in, in this kind of, you know, game of mirroring against other people um, and taking, taking models. Um, this is a core theme of the book is that yeah. there, are, there are models in our lives and we, some of them we're aware of, some of them we're not aware of. And those models heavily influence uh, not only just our surface level behavior, but even what we want, our very desires, the kinds of goals that we pursue. And, and I definitely want to dig into that, but let, let's start with the, the basically the prologue of the book. Um, this is an amazing moment in your life. Uh, Tony Shea at Zappos was about to acquire your e-commerce company for wellness products, fitfuel.com. Um, and then something else happens. <laughs> Tell us that story. Yeah, so I'd gotten to know Tony over the course of a few months uh, in the summer of 2008. And we met at a just kind of a random lunch uh, mm-hmm. where I sent him a cold email and we met up and we had such a great lunch. By the end of that, you know, Tony thought that we hit it off so well that we should consider exploring some kind of a partnership. The next three months were a total whirlwind. I was going to, you know, Zappos, if you're not familiar with the culture, anybody listening, just had an amazing kind of fun, you know, company culture, people like would die just to take tours of their offices. They had so much going on there. They had this wonderful library when you first walk in. So I just went right down the Zappos rabbit hole and Tony and I started to hang out a lot, but it was 2008. 
And when Tony and I met in early 2008, you know, things were looking good. Zappos had just given bonuses to everybody. By the end of the summer, uh, things were not so good anymore. Nope. So Tony and I started these acquisition talks. And, I, you know, I, here I had it in my head that I was about to sell my company. And we were basically going to merge with Zappos. So I would become part of the Zappos team. And in a very short period of time, the whole deal f- basically fell apart. And I, I tell the story in the book because the, the Zappos board got spooked. Things, you know, Bear Stearns had just recently went under and nobody wanted to make any big acquisitions. And what I didn't know at the time is that Jeff Bezos was talking to Zappos about buying Zappos. So mm-hmm. I didn't know that that was going on behind the scenes. So there came a moment when Tony and I uh, celebrated what we thought was a deal between our companies. Yeah. And I was so thrilled. We went out to the Mandalay Bay casino and had drinks on the strip. And I woke up the next morning. <laughs> and in the course of those 24 hours, some key people within Zappos had essentially changed their minds. Mm. And I, I had this weird sensation. I mean, first of all, I was like sick to my stomach. I, I was... Right. I was just, I felt like total whiplash. I went from this really high, high to a very low, low. And I also felt an odd sensation of relief. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't quite put my finger on why. But the relief had to do with mimetic desire and some of these things that I had been striving for and pursuing so relentlessly that I had never really taken the time to just slow down and be quiet for once in my life and ask myself why it was that these, some of these, you know, I would say some of these more superficial accolades and uh, kind of, you know, company valuation, kind of the things that entrepreneurs can really get caught up in had become so important to me. I'd sort of forgot what what it was that I really wanted. There also felt like an element of the the concept of post-traumatic growth. The idea that you go through these opportunities and they either slay you or they can have you dig for the deeper things in life that we really that we really should pay attention to, like meaning and purpose and love and all that. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I realized was missing in my life. So this this incident forced me really to take some time off. I realized that I had to slow down. Nothing. There were no acquisitions that were going to happen in mm-hmm. 2008. Ooh. So I said, all right, Luke, you, you've got three or six months where you can just uh, do some inner work that you haven't done in a really long time. And I realized that, frankly, a lot of important relationships in my life had taken a backseat to my work and to my companies. And um, I, I realized that needed to change. So there was almost a moment of, of contrition for you know a certain degree of selfishness that I think I'd had in that pursuit, which frankly is very common in, in that kind of startup culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's almost the, it's almost glorified, you know, like you, you sacrifice everything and put in the 80 or 90 hour weeks. Uh, and I don't know if that's healthy. And I I had a moment where I stopped back and said, Luke, is that what you really value? Is that what you really want to do? So in a way, I mean, it was kind of, um, it was a gift that this happened. I mean, it certainly didn't feel like it at the time. But when I look back on it, it was a gift that allowed me to do some of those, uh, some of that introspection. Uh, one of the things that I was fascinated when you were talking about how Gerard sort of arrived at, at the, these theories, um, that they, they came through the lens of literature mm-hmm. and story. And I love that because it's like that wasn't his like, main area of expertise, was it? No, his, his, he was a historian. Historian. Yeah, yeah. PhD so tell us history. about that. 
Yeah, so he Gerard was a historian, and he was a young professor in the U.S. and was kind of just looking for you know extra jobs and ways to make money. And somebody said, "Hey, you could teach a course on literature, on you mm-hmm. know classic literature." So he didn't want to turn down work, and he accepted the position. So he was given, you know, some some classic novels to read: uh, Flaubert, Dostoevsky, um, Cervantes, uh, a few other really kind of novels that are kind of in the Western canon. And he'd never read most of these novels before. He was kind of just staying one step ahead of his students. But he's he's really a, a brilliant mind, probably mm-hmm. you know a genius. And he was looking for kind of something that would help him make sense of the the connections between the novels. And it's you know it's funny that sometimes we we can see things better from from the outside looking in that people from the inside can't see. For sure. So, so Gerard was able to see something in these novels that even the great literary theorists of the time hadn't noticed, and that was mimetic desire. And he saw that the characters in these novels, they don't spontaneously desire anything. You think of like Don Quixote, right? Mm-hmm. He didn't just wake up one day and decide to be a knight errant. He read about it in a book. Mm-hmm. And and you know if you if you follow these characters in these novels, you see that all of them have models of desire that generate and shape their goals, their wants, their needs, the things that they pursue. And you can kind of trace this through the novels. And it's like getting X-ray glasses when you kind of yeah. see mimetic desire and mimesis for the first time. You start reading these these works and realize how fascinating they actually are. And I, Gerard's theory was like, well, the reason why these have such a hold on us is because this is most like real life. This is most like human nature. We are mimetic and we're highly social creatures. And these novelists got it right. They, they recognized that they couldn't write a character that just spontaneously started to want something because that's not the way that human beings work. Yeah. So central to improvisation is we teach is that you have to have a want. What's your what's your want as a, as a character? And I'm rereading The Great Gatsby because we're working on a comedic adaptation. And I'm like, oh, my God, that this is just the, all that. It's not yeah. it's not plot. You know, that that really isn't what drives it. It's these deep desires. And that is what you're I, I became laser focused in on that because I was reading it while I was reading uh, uh, your book. So I want to dig into the two cycles of desire, right? There's a yin and yang here. Can you talk about that? Sure. So cycle one is kind of mimetic desire when it just runs its own course. And we, uh, you know, we're not realizing the way that our desires are generated and shaped. So mimetic desire very naturally leads to conflict and rivalry. So that the idea of mimetic desire is that desire is contagious. We, look to others to know what to want. We take our cues from from our fellow human beings about what is desirable, what to pursue. If you think about it, there's a very logical next step to that. And the logical next step is that we're now competing with that person for the yeah. same thing. I mean, there, there are scarce goods, and then there are some that I would say are not scarce, like, you know, virtues and love, those that well, we'll get to that. That's cycle two. That's cycle but two. but for for many things, like let's say that it's a role in a play or in a film or something like that. Uh, and we want it because, you know, an actor that we really admire or who's our peer really wants it. And we kind of catch the desire for that. Well, we might have not even known about it. And we're, we're, we're competing with, with him or her for that role now intensely. And in a way, it makes us into rivals. And we can 
go through our lives not realizing the social aspect of desire. And if we don't realize that, we'll kind of constantly be pulled into conflict and um, kind of envious rivalries with people without, without knowing that that's happening. So this is a key theme of the book is how mimetic desire explains a lot of conflict in our culture and in our society. When, especially right now. Especially right now. So this happens on, with people all the time, with two colleagues that begin to m- model desires to each other. But it happens with groups. It happens with political parties. It happens with, like, in, on all different levels, people begin reacting to other people. And their desires begin to be shaped by those other people or those other groups. And, you know, Gerard calls this a double bind, right? So that doesn't end well. It never ends well. It kind of only ends in escalating conflict and misery and anxiety and depression. Cycle two, um, you know, so that's not the end of the story, luckily. Um, you know, there's a way out of that kind of unintentional um, mimesis. And that is having self-awareness about, you know, first of all, that, that the reality is that we are social and that we do look to other people uh, to help us generate and shape our desires. And finding ways to turn this into, frankly, a, a force for good. So mm-hmm. there are many ways that we're, you know, we can have positive mimetic desire. Uh, you know, I'm engaged to be married. Uh, we had a, a COVID wedding. We were supposed to be in January. Now it's uh-huh. going to be in July. It's, it was a total uh, fiasco. But I'm so excited. And, you know, Claire and I have talked a lot about how love is, is mimetic. Or uh-huh. Empathy is mimetic. Like when somebody listens deeply to to us and really gives us a hundred percent of their time and attention and listening. I mean, I think normally we, we listen at like a 25% capacity or something like that. And when somebody changes that and breaks through and listens deeply to you, guess what? You begin to imitate that. And, Mm -hmm. and that becomes a positive mimetic desire and you want to do the same thing for the other person. So in the book, I I lay out a series of things that can operate according, can take the same principle of mimesis and imitation and mimetic desire, but turn it into ways to develop deeper human connections, to love, um, to develop relationships, uh, and to help, to help people want great things. Uh, I stole this from Nir Ayel, who was on the podcast. It came from his book, which is, if it can't be used for evil, it's not a superpower. <laughs> and I say this about improvisation. I think it's true about what we're talking about here. And there's a line in the book that really was sort of um, obvious upon reflection and then uh, amazing because I don't think I, I ever saw it that way where you write, quote, people don't fight because they want different things. They fight because they want the same things. I don't think that's how we think we we're fighting, but it seems to be true. If you think about it, why would we fight if we wanted, if we fundamentally wanted different things? If our goals were completely different, then we wouldn't view the other as an enemy. Yeah. So it, it's, it, it, it's obvious upon reflection, but it's not the way that we normally think. It's normally like, oh, we're so different. But it may be that the, what we what we both want is we're we're competing for power or prestige or rightness or mm-hmm. or, or or whatever it is, and it's like kind of a zero sum game. Like we can only win if they lose, or I'm only right if 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 they're wrong. And it's because at some level, if you go deep enough into any conflict, 
there there is an element of shared desire for something, whether it's recognition yeah. or 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 whatever it is, um, and that really begins to shine a lot of light on what's at the heart of our conflicts, rather than just the superficial explanations. Right? Well, they have different ideas about politics or different ideas, but if you go really deep, there there's something there, and and I do believe that's kind of the way that will heal some of the more persistent conflicts. Uh, we hear a lot this day, uh, these days about the big lie uh, as, it, uh, as it relates to the election. Um, but you also s- talk about this thing, the romantic lie. What is the romantic lie? The romantic lie is the idea that all desires are a product of my imperial autonomous self that I just desire things out of this like chamber of desire that I have inside of me and that they're all just a reflection of Luke Burgess and who I am and what I want. And Gerard, when he was reading novels, he said that bad novels, novels that are not, that don't really capture our imagination are filled with romantic lies. They have characters that want in this way, right? And he opposed that to what he found in, in these novels that he was reading where Desires are, in fact, um, not entirely autonomous, but are contagious and are shaped through social interactions, which is opposed to the romantic lie. So Girard says the romantic lie is kind of a product of a hyper-individualistic age. You know, So we're, we're almost b- believing the romantic lie more than ever before. And what my book is really all about, and I think what Girard is all about, He's getting at the relational nature of a, of, of a human person, and he's getting at something at the heart of relationships and the way that desire uh, is fundamentally relational. Like de- desire is, is, is shaped in the relationship between two people, and that is opposed to the idea that um, it's completely spontaneous, and if we if we really look deep enough and we go to the origin of a lot of our desires, we'll we'll find a person or some kind of a model or some kind of an influence, whether it's one of your parents or a friend or somebody that had a role to play in making that possible. I spent a lot of time while reading this book trying to figure out what my model was. Um, and I kept coming back to my dad. Um, who was a uh, sort of locally famous in Chicago. He's a broadcaster, movie reviewer, theater reviewer for WGN for like 33 years. This podcast is on WGN that I got it because I know people there. I ended up becoming mildly famous in Chicago for my work at Second City and all that. And I'd be like, oh my God, did I pattern that? And and not a bad bad thing because I think he was a very moral, ethical, and talented human being. Uh, but then, of course, because it was my thought that that's who it was, I have to also assume m- maybe I'm wrong and still sort of searching. I don't think, right, th- these models are not like first thought, it's definitely that. But I think you dig, you have to dig deep. You have to dig deep, and it's probably not one one person even, yeah. right? It can be an amalgamation of different influences yeah. through our lives. But the exercise of reflecting on that, and most of us don't. I, I, I mean, I certainly didn't no. until later in life. Uh, you just begin to have an appreciation of the ways that different people have kind of shaped our journey. And it's a beautiful thing. I mean, in positive and sometimes in negative ways. Um, 
but you know realizing that and being grateful for that and you know saying thank you for the role that somebody's had to play in our lives is is a, is a pretty cool process to go through so the the problem we have now assuming all of this is true and these these theories hold up there could not be a worse thing for humans than social media <laughs> that mm. i mean the, the, and the studies are there to prove it in terms of the, the image we're showing ourselves, which isn't necessarily a true image, but also that, you know, you have a, a line in the book, uh, quote, the danger is not that we have a slot machine in our pockets. The danger is that we have a dream machine in our, in our pockets. I mean, this is, this is mimetic desire on steroids. It's, it, I couldn't even imagine a worse situation. I, I mean, I, I, I agree. And, you know, I, I've just read recently in The Economist that, Plastic surgery is booming, uh, booming since the pandemic started, right? Because mm-hmm. everybody's looking at pixelated faces and comparing their face to other people's faces. And I, I think mimetic desire probably has something to do with that. I mean, social media really is just, we went from a world where many of us had, you know, I don't know, a dozen or a couple of dozen close people in our lives that were, you know, we really look to our colleagues, our peers, to having literally billions you know, at 24 hours a day. So we're surrounded by, in Gerard's language, models of desire that are showing us their, you know, great curated life and the vacation destinations that they take and the new clothes that they get on Instagram. I don't know if we're quite equipped. I mean, just at a, at a fundamental level, like we're going to have to build some real machinery in our guts as humans to, to deal with that. Like we, yeah. it seems like we just assume that we know how to live in, in that kind of a world. <laughs> I'm nope. just not, I'm not sure that we do. And, you know, there's a lot of people talking about how social media is addictive at a neurological level, right? Like it's, you know, it, it does generate dopamine. Those things are true. I believe that, you know, it, I, I just don't think it's addictive like a slot machine. I think it's addictive because it's the other people on there and it's the desires that are being modeled to us that really have a fascination over us. If there were no other people on social media and, you know, I got notifications for just nonsense to, you know, go, go, I wouldn't really care. What I care about are the other people, right? Yeah. Uh, So you have a a great story of someone who basically disrupted uh, this, this pattern. And it's the story about uh, Lamborghini uh, as relates to Ferrari. Can you, can you tell that story? Yeah. So this is, um, I lived in Italy for a few years And I found an obscure book that you can only find in Italy and only in Italian. Mm -hmm. And it had this hidden backstory of Ferrari and Lamborghini. And I thought, uh, and I read, I read Italian, I read it better than I speak it. Uh, So I thought, you know, I I feel like I want to translate this story um, for, for English readers. So it made it into the book and it's, a story of how, you know, Ferrari is the most famous racing car in the world. Uh, and they've become synonymous with luxury and status signaling and all that stuff. But they really started out as a, as a racing company. And Ferruccio Lamborghini, who's the founder of, um, of the Lamborghini automobile, well, way before he made cars, he just made tractors. Mm-hmm. Uh, he made a very good tractor in Italy. And he uh, met... Ferrari because he was a wealthy, he ended up doing very well selling tractors and he bought himself a Ferrari Mm -hmm. and his Ferrari kept having a clutch go bad and he he was driving him crazy. He had to take it back to the Ferrari auto repair shop four or five, six times and they would charge him an arm and a leg and they would give him a new clutch. And he finally got so fed up with having to get his clutch repaired 
that he had his own mechanics at his tractor factory op- open up the you know the, the car and take a look and he realized that ferrari had used just like basically a really bad clutch that he had used in his own tractors and they just charged him like 10 times the price for it hmm. so he had his mechanics um, put one of his best tractor clutches in the car and he went to Enzo Ferrari and he wanted to just give him a piece of his mind about what had happened. <laughs> he went into his office and said, listen, you know, my clutch keeps breaking, but I just want to tell you, you know, I have, you know, I, I, I've fixed the problem my, myself, right? Because mm-hmm. you guys, you know, weren't, weren't doing it and you were overcharging me. And Ferrari looked at him and said, you know, this is probably apocryphal, but some version of the story is like, you should just stick to making tractors and let me worry mm-hmm. about cars. And by the way, you're breaking the clutch because you don't know how to drive my cars or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, I've, I've broken a clutch before. I don't really know. <laughs> it's, yeah. I, I grew up with automatics. I, I learned late in life. Mm-hmm. So it's the story in the book. I tell the story about this mimetic rivalry between Ferruccio Lamborghini and Enzo Ferrari where that incident drove Lamborghini to get into the car business and within a few short years, he ended up making um, uh, uh, his first Lamborghini, which in many ways surpassed a lot of the specs of Ferraris. Yep. And the way that he broke the cycle is that rather than continue on for the rest of his life, taking Enzo Ferrari as a model and getting into the racing business, he ended up not taking that rivalry all the way. He never, well, Lamborghini races now, but during... Ferruccio's life, he never got into the racing business because he realized that that was a game with no end. Yeah. And he retired to a, a beautiful uh, winery. I believe it's in Perugia. And, um, you know, he it, it was a story of a rivalry that bore positive fruit, you know, and we have Lamborghinis today because of his mimetic desire um, and, and rivalry in some ways with, with Ferrari. So that was a good thing. It, it, it produced innovation. It produced a beautiful vehicle. Uh, I've never driven one. I don't know, but what he, what he didn't let it do is, is destroy him and consume him. And that, that's really kind of, you know, I present that as, as an example of a way out of, a, out of the trap of rivalry that ends in kind of misery. You know, I'm going to ask you about for your yes and stories soon, but that's a real great no. That's an elegant no right there. Yeah. There's a place for that. Um, okay. Two, two more things I want to ask you about before I get your yes and story. Here's a quote from the book, and it's not your quote. It's author James Clear. Quote, we don't rise to the level of our goals we fall to the level of our systems. I have put this on LinkedIn. I have uh, added it in a company communication. I sent it to my wife. It's so such a great phrase. Um, talk, talk about why you included it in, in the book. Yeah. Um, so I, I included this in the book because um, I've been fascinated with why we choose the goals that we choose. And, you know, this is heavily related to to the theme of the book. I mean, if we're choosing goals unreflectively, we might not sort of understand that they're not, in fact, our goals. They're, they're somebody else's goals. And, it, you know, that, that, that story of my early days of entrepreneurship, I was yeah. adopting other people's goals as my own. And I included this in the book because I have a whole chapter about understanding the, the systems of desire that you're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, every 
industry usually has a system of desire. Um, the one in that I, the example that I give in the book is the Michelin star kind of rating system that every French chef uh, has to contend with. It's just part of their world, right? Um, and if you don't understand kind of the system of desire that you're in, um, it, it can just end up sort of dominating your decision making in your life, and uh, f- sort of the, falling to the level of your. Um, sorry, what was the quote again? Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, we don't rise to the level of our, our goals; we fall to the level of our systems. Yeah, exactly. So so we fall to the level of our systems. If you don't understand that system, and you don't, if you're not intentional about you know how you're going to exist in that system, then you're just going to kind of, um, it's just going to take you wherever, wherever the tide ha- happens to be going and you're going to just kind of float downstream. Yeah. I was thinking about that in terms of second city and I was like, Oh, I would imagine the unsuccessful way to navigate your way through second city is to see it as a star factory. Cause that's the way it gets talked about. And instead the successful way to uh, manage the system at second city is to realize you live inside these ensembles where you collaborate freely and, discover and enhance your artistic voice and the artistic voice of your fellow ensemble members. And that's a very, that's a healthy way to, to sort of operate inside this place. Yeah. Um, okay. One more thing, comedy related. Sure. Uh, uh, Jen Ellison is a, a, a director here and a professor. Uh, and she came up with this line, which I've used all the time when talking about the style of comedy we prefer at second city. And she says there are thick jokes and there are thin jokes. And what you want are thick jokes, which are probably a little bit more complex, a little bit more chewy. The thin jokes would be a pun. That, that, is, that, is, that is something that we're not looking for. So there I'm reading your book, and you write, quote, discovering and developing your thick desires is how to protect against cheap mimetic desires <clears throat> and ultimately how to live a more fulfilling life. I think it's a similar concept. Very similar. That's fascinating. Yeah. I'd never heard that before. I hadn't it's, either. <laughs> it's a very similar concept. Yeah. So a thin desire would, I guess, would be like a pun. Yeah. Um, you know, and so to translate that to the, to the concepts of desire, mimetic desire are just, the, they're just the easy kind of unreflective, superficial desires that, that we, we pursue, you know, like, um, all of my friends are doing this during COVID or going out and buying this thing. So I've got to go buy one too, or something yeah. like that. Um, a thick desire, it gets under the surface of the mimesis of the kind of re- very reflexive things that we want and gets at the heart of, well, what is it that we're truly seeking? Like what's underneath all of this, right? Like, why do I, why do I really want to get a dog or why do I, why do I really want to kind of move to this city? A thick desire, one way to think about it, the image that I have in my mind is like thin desires are like sand that, you know, can easily be blown away with, with a big gust of wind. And the thick desires are like the, the solid layers of rock that are beneath Mm. the sand. They're the desires that have likely been with us uh, for a very long time. And they're probably going to remain with us uh, for a long time, for the next 5, 10, 15 years, hopefully. And the book it has a process of trying to sift out and, and get beneath the thin desires and, and help people identify those thick ones. Okay, great. Um, so we always ask our guests to end the podcast with a yes and story. So in the parlance of improvisation, uh, when two people are making something out of nothing, they get nowhere by saying no, and they actually don't get that far by saying yes. We say you say yes, and you affirm and contri- contribute in order to explore and heighten. That's the improv context. Um, but it works in life and business. So I'm wondering if you have a yes and story for us. 
Well, um, the first thing that comes to mind is, is really, um, really a fundamental turning point in my life where I'd started a few companies in my 20s. And it was not too long after the, the blown up deal with Tony Shea mm-hmm. that I felt, and the only way that I can really describe it, is a, a real calling to, uh, to explore things that I had let go uh, and just kind of buried uh, beneath my, 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 my work, right? All of my, my startups. Uh, it was a calling to explore classic literature, philosophy, and ended up being a, a calling to explore um, the possibility of the priesthood. <laughs> huh. And my, my yes, it was a really hard yes to, to, to say, I'm actually willing to be open to the idea um, mm-hmm. that I might have a different kind of vocation, even though I've thought of myself as, as an entrepreneur in my whole life. And the really hard part about that was I, I really didn't want to. I was, frankly, very scared to even consider that that possibility. I'd never thought of myself in that way at all. Yeah. So, you know, saying yes, just to being open to even considering that possibility and to doing the discernment was incredibly difficult. And the and came in uh, where I realized, like, Luke, you've, you've went all in and been willing to take huge risks to start companies and put everything on the line financially, put your life on hold. Um, you've been able to do this for three companies now. And here you are feeling this tug that you've just got to go, like, you know, you got to go see about a girl kind of a thing, right? Yeah. From Goodwill Hunting, right? Now you're feeling this little tug. You can't really explain it. It's mysterious. Doesn't make any sense. But you would have pursued this for a company. Like the least you can do is 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 follow this thing to the end, follow this little desire to the end and see where it leads. And my end moment was, yes, I, 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 will, I will do that. I will explore this and see where it leads. And I will go all in. I will, I will lean into it. Um, I will, I will take the steps necessary to to explore this, and I'm going to give it at least as much effort as I used to give my companies. Mm-hmm. And um, that openness uh, has changed my life. I mean, I didn't end up, uh, you know, th- I'm not a priest. Nope. <laughs> but uh, I, I I really explored it at a deep level, and I mean, I wouldn't be who I am. I wouldn't be here today unless I had said yes. Yeah, yeah, you you found something else, and the only reason you found something else is because you were open to the experience of of actually doing doing the hard thing. Yeah, the book is called Wanting: The Power of a Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. Luke Burgess, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been fun. Getting the SN is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor and producer is L.F. Garris. We get support at the Second City from Jenny Crowley, Abby Bumblebear, Mike Farinaccio, and Colleen Fahey. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you have questions, guest ideas, or if you want more information on working with Second City Works, you can go to www.secondcityworks.com, or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
recevoir.